Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lingwin, hoping... You have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, especially the joy you feel when you share God's love with others. As we do each week, I like to begin our program with a story that is based on faith and formed with imagination. There's the key word we're going to be talking about tonight, faith and imagination. As Jesus sat alone on the ground, tears flowed uncontrollably down his cheeks. His voice quivered as he prayerfully spoke out loud, although no one was near enough to hear him. Why, Father, why? Have I not tried to speak faithfully the words you have given me to speak? Jesus looked down at the ground, but he could not see anything but a blur through his tears. The sun was still very bright and very hot, but he could not feel it because his heart seemed to be broken. He was saddened and disillusioned by people's lack of response to his words. Jesus did not see the man who approached him until his visitor broke the silence and said, Jesus of Nazareth, I have come to speak with you. Jesus turned his head toward him, wiped away his tears and the sweat and dirt from his face before asking, Who comes to me? The man answered, It is me, Master. Jesus responded, Then speak. The man asked, Why are you so sad, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus answered, My friend, if you could see or feel my heart, you would know that it is broken. When I speak, people do not always listen to my words, do not keep them in their hearts and souls. Sometimes they even mock me, and Jesus was suddenly overcome by emotion, stopped speaking, admitted, a loud sob. The man said, Maybe I should cry with you, but I cannot. I am filled with joy because I know you truly are the Son of God. Jesus quickly extended his arms to him, and a large, radiant, beautiful smile filled Jesus' face. He embraced the man and asked, Where do you come from? Who sent you? The man answered, No one has sent me, Master. I have come on my own because I wish to live my life according to your beliefs. My family is saddened by my decision because I come from a long line of men whose beliefs and outlook on life are totally different than yours. 
but I know in my heart, and he touched his chest, that you have the key to understanding life and achieving salvation. There was admiration and love for one another in their eyes. The face of one was swollen from crying and covered with perspiration and dirt from laying his head on the ground. The face of the other was clean and filled with joy. They knew at that moment that by working and praying together, they could successfully give to the world the words which filled Jesus' heart. Jesus knew this man was an answer to his prayers. Our guest this evening writes in the introduction to his book titled Reimagining Apologetics, The Beauty of Faith in a Secular Age. What does it mean to commend the Christian faith in a secular age? This is one of the questions that sent me back to school. I was ministering to emerging adults in the Chicago suburbs and encountering a troubling fragility in their faith. They would speak of disconnection. Sunday was full of meaning. The God seemed distant outside the walls of the church. One student, whom I will call Daniel, described it to me this way. When we are in church and I'm listening to the preaching, it's like you are weaving a spell. I believe, and the world makes sense to me. But then I walk out the door of the church and it, like, it is like this. The spell is broken. As the one doing the preaching, I felt the fragility in my own faith too. Why did what felt so believable on Sunday not feel as believable on Monday? Would it changed? Why did it seem as if every day life existed in a different universe than the one we inhabited together on Sundays? This experience is not unique in our contemporary context. Christian faith, which once enjoyed widespread cultural ascendancy in the Western world, is no longer taken for granted. Where it remains, belief is reckoned a lifestyle option. To the outside world, my faith may be important, may be an important identity marker, but no more so than my preference for Kansas City Royals baseball rather than the St. Louis Cardinals. Students like Daniel may continue to believe, but they are in constant contact with others who seem to get along fine without formal religious faith. In a place of a shared story, we have a thousand micro-narratives, which we are free to pick up or put down as we choose. There is a widespread sense that the only meaning to be had is the meaning that we ourselves must make. The existential burden is great. Choose your own way of being human. Dr. Justin Bailey, Ph.D., is Assistant Professor of Theology at Dort University. He works at the intersection of theology, culture, and ministry, an ordained minister in the Christian Reformed Church, and has served as a pastor in Filipino-American, Korean-American, and Caucasian-American settings. Dr. Justin Bailey, welcome to Amplify. Thanks, Father Rod. It's good to be on with you. Well, nice to have you. 
As I mentioned on the phone, uh, I have uh, a lot of books to pick from, usually, uh, for a Sunday evening program once a week. And sometimes just the title turns me on uh, or the the publicity material that comes with it. Uh, Some I ask for a copy beforehand so I can look at it to be sure. In your case, when I saw that you were writing about imagination, also as it relates to faith, I said, let's book it right now. I was not, I didn't even have to read the book uh, in, in this case. Uh, in my in my love for imagination, as you yourself mm. say, you write in your book, what might it mean to disciple the imaginations of those I was called to serve? And what might it mean to address the imaginings of those outside the walls of the church? These are the questions I've tried to explore in this book, questions that continue to orient my professional and pastoral work. How is it that that continues? Yeah, well, first of all, let me just say thank you for, uh, first of all, being interested in the book and for reading it and for taking it seriously. Um, That's certainly a gift to to every author. Um, As you said, this book really came out of my own questions, uh, my continuing questions and continuing quests, both as a Christian myself who's trying to walk with the Lord in the midst of a very sometimes complex and confusing world, as well as somebody who's trying to minister to um, emerging generations, emerging adults, and listening to the sorts of questions that they have, which are a little bit different than uh, perhaps questions that have gone before and some questions that are similar uh, to questions that have come before. And as I sought to minister to these students, first as, um, as, a, as a pastor, and then now as, um, as, a, as a professor, I felt like there was always this disconnect, and I felt quite adept at being able to, let's say, catechize the students and, and teach them um, basic doctrine and, and apologetics in a traditional sense. But I felt like there was something missing, like I expressed in the quote that you read. And the more I kind of dove into these questions, the more I became convinced that Critical, it, the critical piece was the imagination. I wasn't quite sure what that meant, right. um, but, but uh, it, it seemed like everything sort of pointed back to, um, to the imagination, and that we've sort of done ministry for a little while, uh, sometimes, as if people were uh, brained on a stick and have not mm-hmm. taken into account um, the other components of what makes human life really worth living, and that includes their embodied uh, emotional experience of the world, uh, it includes their hopes and desires and dreams, their sense of what is possible. And that, that's what I meant by, um, by the imagination. When I, when I think of apologetics, you've got to know that I was ordained in 1966. And in my own tradition, um, right after the Second Vatican Council, it had a right. huge impact on my church. And um, a lot of questions were being asked um, by younger people, uh, even even then, well, what happened to these memorized answers we had in, from catechisms? And um, apologetics was largely that in many ways in terms of preparing our young people uh, for, to understand their faith and even for us as future priests to know how to deal with uh, the questions that might be raised 
And like, here are the answers. It's almost like right. he was memorizing answers to questions. And if you if you memorize enough of the answers, then you were a great apologist. But your approach is different and, and distinctive, isn't it? We're going to talk more about it and what you really believe at the by by the end of this program. But how is it different? How is your approach different? Yeah, well, let me just say that I certainly still believe there is a place for that sort of apologetics that you've described. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe uh, a handbook approach where uh, if they say this, you say that. Um, There there is certainly a place for uh, catechism. That's an important part of Church's mission. Uh, In my own tradition, traditional apologetics has been oriented primarily towards defending the truth claims of the Christian faith, and that has both an internal focus, as you described, Um, you know, bolstering up the belief of the faithful, making sure that our young people have, know that there's good reasons for why they should uh, believe that that God exists and that God is good and that um, the Christian faith is true. And then there's also a a more outward-facing approach to apologetics, which is interested in Christian witness and perhaps sometimes even in an adversarial way, taking on um, secular atheism, things like that, that are encroaching their way in. And so apologetics has been weaponized in a lot of ways as, um, as part of a larger culture war. And uh, my approach to apologetics, again, doesn't deny that there is a time and a place for its sort of uh, the traditional apologetic, but it's, it's oriented to a little bit larger than just the truth. Because when we talk about Christian faith, we have something that's not just true, but is also good and is also beautiful. And, um, you know, Hanser's von Balthasar has this great quote um, where he writes about when we get rid of one of the transcendentals, we, we, we seem to lose all three. <laughs> and, um, and I feel like one of the ways, at least in my own tradition, that we have focused so much on the truth claims of Christianity. And again, I, there's nothing wrong with focusing on the truth claims. Uh, we want to get reality right. Uh, but that when we neglect the goodness and the beauty of Christianity, then we haven't really given anyone a reason to care about uh, whether or not our claims that we're defending are true. And um, you you write that uh, in almost all mainstream institutions, apologetics has been jettisoned as a relic of a bygone era, and that it's too aggressive and not effective in addressing contemporary crises of faith. It should be renamed Christian witness or pastoral apologetics. And um, you believe that it needs a fresh infusion of imagination. Just say a little bit about imagination, because we'll go more deeply into it later in the program, because you have a whole, a whole chapter on it. Yeah. Um, so when I say imagination, I know there's probably a lot of things that people might think when you hear um, imagination. And I think perhaps two of the ways that we think about imagination that might not be helpful is, first of all, is the imagination is, as escapist. So we use imagination to escape from harsh reality. Maybe we go to the uh, the movie theater, and we watch a movie, and we want to kind of zone out and not think, and so we we seek refuge in imaginative uh, works. Um, or we might also think of the imagination as something that, that kids do, make-believe. Uh, so we either think of it as escapist or as infantile. And, um, and I wanted to say that the imagination is quite a bit more than that. Uh, the imagination is actually one of the greatest things about being human, because it is the faculty of possibility. It is the faculty with which, in many ways, we hope. Um, the way we, uh, it's the faculty with, with which we consider um, views that are other than our own. It's the faculty that enables us to have empathy. 
uh, for other people. It's the faculty that enables us uh, to see things from somebody else's point of view. Uh, one of the difficulties for apologetics or for commending the Christian faith to somebody is that there are some things about Christian faith that can really only be understood from the inside. Um, and so that's a challenge, right, for somebody who's on the mm-hmm. outside uh, to help somebody who's on the outside to understand how it feels uh, from the inside. And so the imagination is actually this great gift that we have, because with our imagination, we're able to enter in and see through somebody else's eyes. And this is why stories are so powerful. This is why testimonies are so powerful. Uh, when I say, let me tell you a story, or as you, as you began your program uh, reading that story, uh, we are not using the analytical intellect to pick it apart, but we're using our imagination to enter in and participate. And Christian faith, and the way that it's presented to us in the scriptures, um, is primarily a story. It's the story of mm-hmm. God, the story of Israel, the story of Jesus and the Church. And it's not a list of bullet points, things to be memorized and repeated. And so we are invited into this story, and that requires us to use our imagination. So it makes sense that we would do apologetics in a way uh, that engages all of our human faculties and not just our intellectual ones. And if I were to summarize what uh, you've said to, to some degree, uh, reading from your book, you write, it's impossible to separate my faith, what I believe in and whom I trust, from my desire, what I love and what I wish to be the case, and my imagination, what I feel is possible, as well as from my concrete lived reality, the way that my faith is tested and maintained in the course of everyday life. And so um, imagination plays a substantial role in the way that beliefs are formed. And Karl Barth alleges that, you write, apologetics betrays the faith it purports Mm -hmm. to defend. But you make a distinction between upper and lower case apologetics. We just have about two minutes before we take our first break. But um, you state that you're taking, in this book, a lower case apologetic for the age of authenticity. We'll talk about that age in a little bit. Uh, but what what is this age of authenticity? Yeah, the age of authenticity is the age that is really summarized well in the quote that you read, choose your own way of being human. It's an age in which uh, my sense of residence with the world um, is what is most important to me rather than um, necessarily what I think is true about the world. Now, those things are related, but my felt sense is going to be the most important thing. Maybe a popular version of this is the mantra from Disney, follow your heart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is an age in which we are very much encouraged not to look without to find a compass, but to look within for a compass. That's the age of authenticity. And I'm trying to make an apolog- a lowercase apologetic uh, that addresses that, the particular parameters for Christian witness. Yeah, you, uh, authenticity, you says, makes belief believable in secular sessions, and you argue that God may be more present in the quest for authenticity than we think that God's Spirit is at work, and we can't lose sight of that, can we? Yeah, yeah. Traditionally, when we talk about authenticity, uh, we talk about it sometimes uh, as as prone to narcissism, and that's certainly the case, uh, that, that it can lead to narcissism. But I don't think it has to lead to narcissism. And so that's why I think with, with Charles Taylor, who I write about in Chapter 2, 
the struggle ought not to be whether or not authenticity is a good thing, but what kind of authenticity will actually mm-hmm. give us the sort of full and beautiful life that we're seeking. Okay, we're going to take our first break now. And we talked about uh, the book Reimagining Apologetics, the beauty of faith in a secular age. And our guest is Dr. Justin Ariel Bailey. And we will be right back after this short break. Welcome back to uh, Amplify, where our guest this evening is Dr. Justin Bailey. We're talking about his book, Reimagining Apologetics, the Beauty of Faith in a Secular Age. Uh, he is teaching as a professor now, and uh, he writes in, in, in his, uh, his, his book, uh, Defining Imagination, Seeking Possibility. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that, but he... He writes of a, a story at, at a time when he was, when he was teaching. It says, it was my first solo flight as a seminary instructor. I had just finished a lecture comparing Plato with an Aristotle and asked the class if there were any questions. After a pause, a student raised his hand and asked the question, dreaded by humanities professors everywhere, why does any of this matter? It was a fine question. I was relatively prepared to answer it, even if I was annoyed by the pragmatic overtones. Quote, I am telling a story, I said, and this part of the story matters because it has shaped so much of the way that we think in the Western world. If we want to understand how we got to where we are, we have to understand what has changed in the way we imagine the world. And and everyone's saying they believe with all that's happening today that that is so true uh, today. And uh, the who cares? I, I remember it's a number of years ago. There was this little boy. He had to pick it up somewhere because he certainly didn't understand. But in the middle of anything, when people were talking about something, he would just say, blurt out, who cares? And, <laughs> and it was like funny. Everyone would laugh, but it would, it, we would stop. And But you have indicated that we have all been trained to perceive the world in a particular way. And it can be very difficult to get outside the way of seeing it. But you believe that the good news can be communicated in the logic of authenticity without compromising its integrity. Tell us a little bit about the apologetics of hope and the apologetics of despair and how they're different from one another. Right. Yeah. So the apologetics of despair is an apologetic that seeks to enter a secular worldview and um, uh, it's called Taking the Roof Off. So I think your name, Francis Schaeffer, was uh, fond of this strategy where you try to show that apart from uh, God, to give some sort of objective grounding to uh, morality, for example, or metaphysics or meaning or even beauty, uh, that you can't really get off the ground. It's all... um, you know, what you, life is just what you make of it. It's, it's the meaning that you yourself supply. And so this project of despair, which is pra- practiced by people like Pascal or Kierkegaard, is designed to 
in some ways reduce the atheistic or secular position to absurdity by showing that it's not coherent. And again, I, I think that there is a place for that sort of approach, uh, but I'm wanting to move in the opposite direction. Uh, I want to start in an existential register, just like the apologetics of despair does, uh, and take a sense of whether or not something is livable, how it feels from the inside. Except for I want to see what is God already doing here? Um, so rather than trying to deconstruct um, a secular worldview, uh, I'm wanting to enter in and say, where is, the, where is God already at work here? This is another difference, perhaps, between the uppercase apologetics, which kind of comes in with a project and with a program and it's kind of a top-down approach, and the lowercase apologetics is less concerned with defending truth and more concerned with discerning presence. And uh, under the belief that the world belongs to God and that humans are made in God's image and God's spirit is a work to bring creation to consummation, uh, we can find surprising, uh, the surprising presence of God in even the strangest of places. And so part of this is why I believe that even in a situation of authenticity, where we are very pragmatic, very um, existential in the way that we approach the world, uh, that God is at work in the midst of the search. And if we can uh, point people's imagination in the right way and supply not just food for the intellect, facts for the intellect, but food for the imagination, that we can actually find a pretty robust apologetic uh, for the for the age of authenticity. I mentioned earlier on that uh, we have an opportunity to speak a little more about uh, imagination to depth, and let me um, read a little bit from the book from asking you the next question that I love the way that you presented it. Um, so I, I wish to define the imagination as a faculty concerned with possibility. Second, I will defend imagination as responsive to a real presence. Third, I want to direct the imagination for participation in the theodrama of Scripture. Imagination in which the human person responds to divine presence by seeing, sensing, and shaping possibility in the created world. Now, I could go on and read a lot more, but I really want to get to the point where you, you, you write, let's consider these claims using a line from John Lennon's classic song, Imagine All the People Living Life in Peace. Where can we find—tell us about uh, that line and how he's using imagination, and then whether or not we can find imagination in Scripture. Sure. So for the Lennon line, I I felt like that was probably— maybe in popular culture, the thing that most people would be able to identify with, uh, with the song Imagine. And I was using that song in a particular way to show that the way that Lennon uses Imagine in that song, he is not treating it the way that we often treat imagination. As I just said, it's not escapist and it's not infantile. He's treating the imagination as a faculty of considerable power. Uh, He believes that if we you know, use our imaginations, we can almost imagine ourselves into a better, more peaceful, more, more just world. And we might obviously disagree with uh, the method that he um, is taking, but I was, I was, I was hoping to, to surface um, how seriously uh, John Lennon is taking the imagination uh, in, in that particular song. And then what was the second part of the question? No, that, that was really what I was le- looking uh, for you to talk about, just um, that that aspect of uh, of imagination 
and you spoke of that as modern time. That was modern time for me, but that was a while ago, <laughs> because you also talk about how when you read Harry Potter to your children, their imagination yes. is engaged at multiple levels. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I was trying to say, ultimately, that we tend to associate imagination and the imaginary, right, things that are not real. And so sometimes people get maybe a little bit um, hesitant when you start talking about faith, because we believe that these are, are real things, real presences. God is, is really there, and, and reality is impinging on us in some way. And I certainly want to say that, but I also want to say that the imagination is actually seeking to get a grip on what is real. And the most interesting thing, perhaps, about the imagination is that it's the faculty with which we suspend, um, we suspend actuality uh, in order to get a, a firmer grip on reality. So even my children, when they use their imagination to play and they put together, you know, Harry Potter and Lego and all the different stories that are in our culture, they, they mash them all up together into, you know, this imaginative situation um, that it ultimately is enabling them to navigate the world better in some way. And that's one of the reasons why we even as adults, continue to seek out imaginative works and to read stories and to watch stories. Ultimately, we are not just using our imaginations to escape. We are using our imaginations to suspend what is actual, at least in the moment, to explore what is possible, uh, because we are trying to get a firmer grip on reality. Uh, this is what we use the imagination for. We want to have a sense of, of who we are and where we are and, and what is possible for us. Uh, what kind of life is worth living? What kind of life is beautiful? And, and is this even open to me to pursue this kind of a life? Now, we're, we're going to just touch on imagination. I've learned a lot to a much greater depth uh, from your, your perspective. Um, back 31 pages is that particular chapter on imagination shows how important it is in your book. But you also indicate that we can become more fully human, more fully human when we use our image to imagine, to image God. Yeah. So there's this real sense that, um, I mean, if we think about the creation mandate, for example, God creates a good world and then gives the gift of creativity to humanity and says, now go and make it even better. And then, of course, sin intrudes on that project and humans turn their imaginations towards vain imaginings. Um, but that initial creative gift, that imaginative gift to, uh, and I tell my students, because oftentimes my students will say, well, I'm not creative. Um, and I say, that's, that's wrong. You, if you are made in God's image, you are creative, because that's part of the birthright of being made in God's image, is to have an imagination that seeks out possibilities and to have the creativity to take whatever situation you're in and seek to make it better in some sense and more beautiful. And so, the problem is, is that sin has intruded into this story and has twisted human hearts and has twisted human's vision, human vision so that uh, we, have, we have a distorted vision of who God is. We have a distorted vision of our neighbor. We have a distorted relationship with the created world. So now our imaginations go off in the wrong direction. And so the solution to this, of course, is not to uh, do away with the imagination just because we have vain imaginings. The solution is to restore uh, virtuous imaginings. Uh, through the redemption that we find in Christ and through the direction of the Spirit of God, uh, working through the Church. This is the way that our, our vision is, is, is that God opens the eyes of our heart, as, as the Apostle says, uh, so that we can see clearly and we can live fruitfully. 
and what's happening is that the original creative vocation is being restored to us so that we can actually use our imaginations to enter into uh, whatever situations that we find ourselves in and in some small way make it better. That's what it means to be human. That's the human project is uh, to take this God-given gift of creativity that's been turned aside by sin and experience redemption through Jesus Christ so that we can now be a force of healing and restoration in the world. But as is, is, is the case for all of God's gifts, um, it was given for good, but it also can be used to sin, can't it? I mean, the, this is the age Absolutely. of pornography, for example. Yeah. Yeah, where idolatry is probably, I mean, the, the, the most fundamental way that we see yes. human imagination going astray throughout Scripture. Um, and, uh, and so that's why we need, we, you know, one of the points I try to make in my book is that we're not just giving free license to bless all human imaginings, uh, but we want to affirm the fundamental created structure of the imagining as a, as a created good, and then allow it to be um, critiqued and and brought into a harmony with God's desire that we see in the scriptures. So that's why in, you know, in, in response to human idolatry, all the Im- images we make of God, God gives us Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And this is the image by which all of our mm-hmm. imaginings of God must now be, must now be measured. Um, and it's a surprise to the human imagination. It's not something we ever would have thought. We never would have imagined the cross, for example. That could, the cross would be the most the ugliest thing in, in the world, but then in, in divine transformation, the most beautiful thing in the world. This is a miracle of imagination uh, that only God could have affected. Are there limits to imagination? Absolutely. There have to be limits to imagination. Even if, if I just said... Um, use your imagination, you can't do that um, because I haven't given you anything to point it towards. Um, and so for the imagination to work, there have to be limits to, uh, to constrain it and actually unleash that creativity. You can ask any artist of the, the gift of limits, right? Or just ask any human about the gift of limits. When you try to do everything, we end up destroying ourselves. It's question is finding the right limits, right? What are the limits that will actually unleash me into the person that God has created me to be? And so there are structural limits. You know, there are things we can't imagine, for example. Um, there are moral limits to the imagination. Um, and, uh, and all of these things serve together to, to say what we ultimately need when we think about imagination is a larger story a better and more beautiful story than the story we've told ourselves that can direct us towards flourishing for ourselves and for our neighbors. Um, yeah, you're right. There's, there's plenty, plenty of hope. Uh, when, when we talk about sin and misusing of God's gifts, there's plenty of hope made in God's image, inhabiting God's world, and living before God's face. Every human being is always responding to God's revelatory initiative, an inward capacity to perceive God's presence that results in the religious impulse to reach for God. Mm. Wonderful words. And then as you continue, um, you indicate, and sometimes you're quoting others, uh, you begin by saying the difference between uh, religions is not revelation, rather all religion is a response to 
Revelation. And then um, let me see who you're quoting. Uh, Herman, is it? Herman uh, Bavnik. Yeah, yeah. Who says? Herman Bavnik, yeah. He's a Dutch, Dutch theologian. He, he says, all that is good and true has its origin in grace, including the good we see in fallen man. The light still does shine in darkness. The Spirit of God makes its home and works in all of creation, close quote. And then you write, this is the hallmark of a truly Christian imagination, the conviction that every good and perfect gift, every impulse of faith, every inkling of virtue, even the idea of the beautiful comes from above. And you quote James 117. Yeah, and that's a good example of what I mean when I say an apologetics of hope is seeking to build on that. Um, so not just to, as the other direction, move and, and reduce to despair. Um, sometimes despair clears the way for hope. But to see, let's discern, what is the Lord already doing? What is God's Spirit? How is God's Spirit already at work? Um, for example, in a person who comes to you with a question, somebody who's having a hard time believing or having a hard time, um, who's struggling to believe, uh, God is already at work in that person's questions. God is already at work in that person's hopes and, and sensibilities. And any faith that we find, any inkling of faith or virtue or a desire to be better, that's a sign of God at work um, in their life. Right. Um, and then um, in the conclusion to the chapter on imagination, it's titled Reaching Not Getting a Grip on Imagination, uh, you write these words as you you summarize it. Um, God engages, sin impairs, and grace renews human imaginings. I further argue that this imaginative activity never takes place in God's absence. God, through the Holy Spirit, encounters humanity in mysterious ways, casting new visions drawing out the deepening desire and creating spaces of possibility for human identity and community. Then uh, this quote from uh, Dryness, quote, to imagine... Yes, Dearness, thank you. To imagine God is also to imagine a better future, a new way of being in the world. To imagine God is to ask what if my life, our life together, could be like this? And then you continue uh, that you're going to argue in the remainder of the book that it's precisely in this space of uh, possibility that a reimagined apologetic seeks to work. And, and then we're going to, as we come back uh, much more and much more clearly in the, in the second hour of the program, we're going to talk about George MacDonald and Marilyn Robinson and get to, to your views and further the application. But say a little bit more about uh, your, your concluding here, that it uh, never takes place in God's absence. And so even as we look at the world today and all of the struggles that we're facing, God is still in some way working with within it and in a creative way, hopefully, we can see how that might be happening and draw from it and bring some sense to it all. Yeah, that's sometimes harder to believe than other times. Yes. Um, that's why it's helpful to have the history of 
of the church and to see all the ways that God has worked in more dire circumstances than the ones we find ourselves in right now. But you've really seized on the heart of what I'm trying to get at in this chapter, which is the thing about Christian faith, perhaps, that is most compelling to me, and that is hope. Um, hope answers the question, can tomorrow be better than today? Can I be better? Can I be changed? Can I be transformed? Can my situation be transformed? And what is the hope for that? And um, I'm wanting to say that the hope is found always in God's generosity and grace towards creation, that God has not abandoned his creation to corruption, that God continues to work behind the scenes in unexpected ways to bring about redemption. And so to be faithful in Christian witness or to be a faithful apologist would mean not just showing up to defend truth, but showing up and seeking to discern presence. Where is God present already here, and how can we join with what God's doing? And we need to do that with faith, faith and imagination, um, because we can imagine a lot of the terrible things that might happen in the future. But in the light of that, there is still hope that God is uh, still with us, always will be, and will be providing us through the Spirit uh, ways to work mm -hmm. through the struggles that we face. So our guest this evening is Dr. Justin Bailey. We're talking about his book, Reimagining Apologetics, The Beauty of Faith in a Secular Age, and we'll be back. <laughs> 